Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Um, if you have a Bible with you or you have a, a Bible app on your mobile phone, uh, please turn with me to Mark chapter 8. And I want to welcome you back to part 5 of our series, which is titled From Here to Eternity, um, which is subtitled Living Beyond the Now. And um, uh, we began this series by talking, you know, taking a, a biblical look of what eternity really is and how, how big eternity is and, and in the context of, you know, uh, of our lives, how big eternity is. And, and, and the reality is, is our, our lives here and now are very small when you think about eternity. In fact, we <clears throat> kind of introduced this, this analogy here that uh, if this rope right here represents your life into eternity, then this little part right here, this little tiny section here, represents your life here and now. What we come to understand is life that we live here is but a breath. Okay? But then in week two, we talked about how important this life is right here because we talked about the reality that there is a choice that we all need to make here in this lifetime. We need to choose either to believe in Christ or not to believe in Christ. And the consequences of that decision are far-reaching. They're humongous because the decision affects all of our eternity. It affects all of our future forever and ever and ever. And so if you put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ here in this life, then you spend all eternity in His life-giving presence. But if you don't, you will spend eternity forever in torment apart from the presence of God in hell. And, and the Bible is absolutely clear about that. There is no mistaking that. In fact, that's exactly why Jesus came and died in the first place. Okay, Because we were all, every single one of us, doomed to hell. Uh, but Jesus, but God sent His Son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. And so, through faith in Him, we could be saved. And then in week uh, three, we begin talking about how we need to live beyond now and start living for eternity, especially for the people in our lives. In fact, um, the way that we live our lives and how we live out our faith has a huge impact on the people around us, especially our families. Uh, what our families see in us and our relationship with God affects their decision to follow Christ and ultimately affects their eternity. And so we outlined a way that we can live our lives for eternity you know, at home, which involves teaching our families about God and then modeling the way. And then last week we talked about how our spiritual leadership Leadership not only affects you know people at home, but it also affects people around us, people at work, people at school, people at the mall, anyone that you come in contact with. Okay, and we talked about the importance of us living for eternity wherever you go and whatever you are doing. We need to be sharing and teaching the gospel and modeling the way. We need to model the way in spiritual disciplines, unconditional love, repentance, forgiveness, service, grace, and gratitude, and that we as Christ followers are to continually be ready to share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with anyone at any time as we live out that, that hope. Now, I realize that this is a really short summary of everything that we've covered over the last several weeks, and so if you have missed any of these previous parts, I'm going to encourage you to listen to those, um, just not right this minute. Um, you can actually listen to them on our church website or our SoundCloud page, and uh, the addresses of those are in your, in your bulletin. And you can listen to those messages, and then you can, you can get caught up to where we are, and you can also share those with your friends and your family as well. But this week, what I want to do 
is I just want to take some time and really talk about why it is so imperative that Christians truly begin to change their perspective of how they live for here and now. Okay, we need to talk about why it's imperative that we begin to put away this perspective that, that life is all about me right here, right now, and adopt a perspective that it's all about God and all about eternity. Because let me be really, really honest, okay? In this country and in this culture and in this point in our history, it is so very easy, okay? It is so very easy for me to believe that my life is all about me and my life is about what I want and that my life is about how I feel right now. And it seems that the entire world is completely trying to cater to me. If I want something I can't afford, what do I do? I go to someone who will lend me the money so I can have it, right? And then if I get in over my head, what I do? I just file bankruptcy and I just start over. Right? And if I'm hungry right now, but I don't want to wait and I don't want to cook, then I just go get some fast food or some young, you know, some, some great prepackaged food, you know, or some snacks to satisfy my appetite right now. And then when I get, you know, really out of shape, then and I don't want to have to do anything about it and I want to work at it, I just go have surgery to take care of that. Right? And that's just the tip of the iceberg because everything that I desire and everything that I want practically is available to me in a hurry. It's available online. It's available at the big, at the big box stores. And, and advertisers are continually telling me it's about me and my wants and my desires. And they keep reminding me over and over and over again how much I deserve it. I deserve a break today. I deserve a dream vacation. I deserve indulging my appetites. I deserve to go to Las Vegas where, where what I do in Vegas stays in Vegas. And even the government's even in on the act. More and more the government's making sure I have all my needs met. They're going to make sure I have a place to live, some food to eat. They're going to make sure I have a cell phone and health insurance. And thanks to the government, I don't have to face any criticism for my poor life choices. So it's really very easy in this culture to fall prey to the notion that my life is about me right here, right now. But as a Christian, as somebody who follows Jesus deep down, I know that's not the way that it's supposed to be. I know that my life needs to be more than that. I know that life is so much more than what it is right here, right now. Right? But there's something in all of us, especially in me, that wants to push back against that. I mean, because living for eternity is hard, Sometimes, you know, sharing the gospel sometimes is hard. Modeling unconditional love, repentance, and, and grace is hard sometimes. It's just easier to live in the flesh. It's easier to live in the moment. It's easier just to be a human, right? And then just come to church and make up for it on Sunday, right? It's easier to allow myself to fall down and backslide and, and shirk my duties that God's calling me to do. And, and I think that there's a part of us as Christians that begins to rationalize this. We, you know, tell ourselves that Jesus is going to forgive me anyway. Right? So what does it matter? Or, or we, we say, you know, I'm a Christian, but I just don't feel like acting like a Christian right now. All right? I'm not perfect. <laughs> So who are you to judge me? The things that we say, uh, you know, you know, it's better to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission, right? And, and we begin to to this kind of compartmentalized life. We live this compartmentalized life where over here I'm a Christian, and over here, you know, I'm at work, and over here I'm at school, and over here I'm in a sexual relationship, even though I'm not married, and over here I enjoy being a social drinker a little too much, all right? And so, you know, but hey, I'm still a Christian. Wink, wink. You know, I mean, over here I have this private little sin that I'm not telling anybody about, but I still go to church. 
And there's something in our culture that tells us that this kind of divided kind of Christian identity is okay. You know, we, in our culture, you know, we identify with the holy side of life that God's calling us to, but at the same time, we have this tendency to embrace and wink at and identify with the sinful side of ourselves. And we begin to think that it's the sinful side of us that has the most fun, right? And it's a sinful part of us that stands up for ourselves. You know, we, because of our culture, embrace this kind of duality of the, the sinner, saint, personality. And even, and even though that we are absolutely sinners saved by grace, and as such we are saints, this divided understanding of the Christian identity, the Christian life, isn't biblical. In fact, it's the opposite. And I want to share with you today a story this morning about Jesus that will absolutely put to rest the idea of a divided Christian identity. And at the, the same time, make very clear that Jesus, that he expects for us to live beyond the now and live for eternity. And this particular story actually is so important that three of the four Gospels record this story. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the details of the story are virtually identical in all three of those Gospels. And, and, and this tells me, you know, a couple of things right up front. Number one, that this story actually is something that happened, okay? And number two, this is a really, really important story. And so what I want to do for you is I want to read for you this story of the book of Matthew. In fact, again, it's going to be Matthew chapter 8. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this entire story in its overall context because really the context gives us the ability to understand the main idea that Jesus is trying to communicate here. And so I'm going to read the entire story, and I know it's a little bit long, but, but I'm going to read the entire story. And once I do that, we're going to go back through the individual details of this story so we can actually dig out what this story means for us today as followers of Jesus. And so let's begin in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and it reads this way. <clears throat> and Jesus went on with his, his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do, you, I mean, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but, you, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take up and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what did it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, the adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to the a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant intensely white and no one on earth as no one on earth could bleach them he and there appeared to 
them, Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. Now, in this story, there are some really important features, and they are consistent in all three of these accounts written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, all three Gospels, okay, they begin this story of Jesus with, with Jesus and his disciples talking about who Jesus is. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and the others say, Elijah, and the others say, one of the prophets. You see, it was really evident by Jesus' ministry to everybody around him that he was from God. That there was something special about Jesus. Okay? There wasn't a question of whether or not Jesus actually came from God. Okay? They thought Jesus, now, they weren't sure exactly who he was. They thought he might, maybe was a prophet, maybe he was John the Baptist, kind of come back to life. Maybe he was Elijah. Okay? They knew something was up with Jesus. They just didn't know exactly. And then, then Jesus goes on and asks his disciples a very important question. He asks them, who do you say that I am? I mean, I know what, what those people say. I know what people around you are saying. But what about you? What do you say? Who do you say that I am? What do you think? And then Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ. Now in Matthew, Peter, uh, Peter's recorded as saying, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But the point is, okay, Jesus is... He says, I know what people are saying about me, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter tells him very plainly, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we're waiting for. You're the one that the scriptures are talking about. You're the hope of Israel. You're the hope of the world. You're the one, the Christ. Now, in, in Matthew's account, Jesus makes it clear that Peter didn't come to that conclusion on his own. Okay? In fact, Matthew 16, 17, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God himself opened Peter's eyes to the truth of his word. And the truth is that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the very first application for us out of this story is this. Who do you say Jesus is? What about you? Who do you say that he is? Because the answer to that question really... You know, it has a lot to say about, number one, where you're going to spend eternity, and number two, whether the rest of the story will actually have any application for your life. Because if you think that Jesus is just simply a man out of history, and if you think Jesus was just this great teacher and that's it, then you can really just kind of check out at this point because the rest of the story is kind of irrelevant to you. Okay, Because who cares what Jesus has to say about your life and following him if you spend all of your eternity in hell? It's really quite irrelevant. But if you're like Peter and you believe that Jesus is in fact the Christ, that he is truly the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, then your eternity is absolutely secure. And the rest of this story then has specific application to your life right here and now. So who do you say Jesus is? Well, I know who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. Now verse 30 it says, 
And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. See, it wasn't time for the rest of the world to know about Jesus in that moment. And then verse 31, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Okay, And he said this plainly. So Jesus, at this point, after the disciples kind of discovered who he really is, okay, begins to let, let them know about what the plan is from here on out. He begins to explain to them ahead of time what's going to happen. And he tells them very clearly that he is going to suffer and he's going to die. And then three later, days later, he's going to rise again. And, and, and all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this specific detail. And so Jesus essentially is a prophesying you know, about what's going to happen. He's telling them what to expect. right? And now, you know, and now that they actually understand that he's the Messiah, but look what happens next. It says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, uh, the book of Matthew records Peter not only just rebuking him, but, but saying to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. Now, think about this for a second. Peter, he comes to the divine revelation that, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is God's own son. And in the next minute, he's rebuking Jesus and telling Jesus essentially, shut up, dude. <laughs> That's not going to happen to you. All right? That's not what you're, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, you're the Messiah. I know that. But you're wrong about this. You're not going to die. I mean, yeah, you're from God, but you don't know what you're saying here. So just drop it. Now, before you and I ridicule Peter for this kind of like divided identity. Isn't that just kind of like how we are? I mean, we just, I mean, we, we, this is how we are, right? I mean, I mean, we just talked about this. I mean, we're all like, you know, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you here on Sunday morning, right? But by Monday, we go back to work and back to our other lives doing what we want to do, right? And, and like, we're like, yeah, but Jesus didn't have anything to say about that, right? You know, God, I mean, I know you're God and you know, I know what you're saying is true, but it really doesn't apply, you know, here, that part of my life. I mean, I believe in you, Jesus, and I love you, and I come to church, and I worship you, but this thing I'm doing over here with my sin, it really doesn't have anything to do with you. I mean, I believe the words, you know, Jesus, that you're telling me about you love me, and you're here for me, but I don't really think that, that you know, what you're talking about really applies to my attitude, and, and my selfishness, and my lust, and my vanity, and whatever, you see, we had this divided kind of mind like Peter did. Because, you know, one moment we're like professing Jesus is Lord and Savior and, and raising our hands. And another moment we're, we're living life and acting like he doesn't even exist. You know, just like Peter. Notice how Jesus addresses this in Matthew, uh, I mean, Mark 8, verse 33. He says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Now, this is a... Crazy strong rebuke. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think if Jesus calls you Satan, that's pretty bad, right? Okay? So he says, get behind me, Satan. And then here's the, the heart of the matter. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Now, let that phrase just sink in a little bit. I mean, let it just kind of like hit your mind and just kind of like marinate for just a minute. Jesus says... You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're not setting your mind on the things of heaven. You're not setting your mind on, the, on, on spiritual things or eternal things. Instead, you're putting your mind on the things of man. You're putting your mind on the things that are temporal. 
Okay? You're focusing your mind right now on, 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 on something that's not eternal. Your mind is focused on what you think that you want and what you believe should happen right now. And that's the heart of the matter for Peter. He's not living in that moment for eternity. He was not living with an eternal perspective. He was living for the now. He wasn't thinking about eternal things. Okay? He was just like us, thinking about right now things. Because he has this understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. And as the Messiah, then he's about to ascend to the throne of David as the king of Israel. And that soon after that, the Israel would be a world superpower again. And Jesus would rule forever and ever and ever. And Peter would be one of, one of his right-hand men, which meant Peter... And his mind was about to be promoted to one of the most important people in the entire world. And Peter would have power and wealth and, and he would live a good life right beside Christ forever. And in Peter's mind, this was all about to come true. And then Jesus bursts his bubble and says, I'm going to suffer and die a horrible death. And it's just this moment, if this was a movie that you were watching, you know, that someone's kind of like in this daydream and there's pretty music playing and everything's right with the world, you know, and then, and then, and then suddenly the, the Peter is, is yanked out of the daydream into, into stark reality and the sound that you hear is this beautiful music being played and then abruptly, you know, being interrupted by the sound of a record scratching, you know what I mean? Okay, and that's where Peter, this is where his, burble, his bubble is burst and he's on the doorstep of having everything that he thinks he ever wanted in his life. And Jesus says, that's not the way it's going to happen, my friend. And he explains to him that he's going to die. And Peter's like, wait a minute, that, that doesn't make sense. That can't happen. You see, P Peter's problem is the fact that he's focused on what he thinks needs to happen now. He, he wasn't living for eternity. He was concerned about his plans he, and what he wanted and what his desires were. And he couldn't imagine. He just couldn't fathom the idea of Jesus dying. And so he was focused on the now and, he was bl and it blinded him to the reality okay, that Jesus was trying to communicate to him. And that's how we can be. I mean, we love Jesus and we want to trust him, but we want our lives and our plans. We want to do what we want to do. We want to make sure our lives are about us and our program. It's about us and our careers. It's about us and our plans. It's about us and our desires. That's why, you know, we, we want to do things you know, our own way. And when things don't go our way, what do we do? We lift up our hands to heaven saying, why me, Lord? Right? Because we tend to naturally live for ourselves right now. But Jesus says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, which is the second application to us. We need to be continually asking ourselves, is this about me or is this about God? Okay? Is my mind and my heart set on what God wants or what I myself want? Is my attitude based on a submitted heart towards God or is my attitude based on me and what I want in my plan and my program? You see, Peter had his own program. He had his own ideas and his own desires. And Jesus made it clear to him that his heart and mind were not in the right place. I mean, he called him Satan, for heaven's sake. Yeah, he recognized that Jesus is the Messiah and the Lord, but Peter was still at that time about Peter. And Jesus rebukes him, and, 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 and then Jesus goes on to explain to all his disciples and that everybody was around him that it wasn't about them. And he begins to explain what it actually means to follow Christ. And so in verse 34, it says, 
And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him den deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, if this text doesn't make you shudder or tremble at least a little bit, then you don't know what Jesus is saying here. Because in this one verse, Jesus lays out very clearly what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He lays out what it means to be a Christian. He lays out very clearly what his expectations are. And let me just tell you what he's not saying here. He is not saying, pray a prayer, sing kumbaya, and let the world do what the world does. That's not what he's saying. Okay? He's not saying, okay, that, that, that uh, you know, come to church on Sunday and worship me, right? And then spend the rest of the week acting like I don't exist. That is not what he's saying here. He's not saying that, that you should wear this I love Jesus t-shirt and continue to post Christian quotes on Facebook, right? But then still live your life like it's all about you. Actually, what he's saying is far more specific and far more serious. In fact, what he's saying is, if anyone would come after me or follow me or be my disciple, let them deny themselves, take up his cross, and follow me. And Jesus is saying three very specific things here. Someone who follows Christ or believes in Jesus, that person's expected to, number one, deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow where Jesus leads. Now, let's take a closer look at these three. So the first one that Jesus says is that someone needs, who wants to be his disciple needs to deny himself. Now, <clears throat> again, let me explain to you what he's not saying here. Jesus is not saying take everything you own and sell it, right, and live like a poor, you know, hermit. He's not saying take your smartphone and your computer and smash it on the ground. He's not saying that, you know, sell your house and live in a tent. He's not saying that you need to sell your car and walk everywhere you go. He's not saying give up In-N-Out Burger and Starbucks, okay? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you need to give up all forms of entertainment. He's not, you know, he's not saying that you have to take a vow of celibacy. Now, if you're you know, not married, you probably should. But he's not saying that if you're married that, that you need to do that, all right? Understand, Jesus is not saying that you have to spurn all worldly possessions and live as a hermit in the desert, even though we live in the desert, okay? What he's saying here is you must be willing to deny yourself when what you want is in conflict with what God wants. And that is the application. We must be willing to deny yourself what you want when it's in conflict with what God wants. You must be willing to deny yourself when your plan conflicts with God's plans. You must be willing to deny yourself whatever your passions are and whatever desires that, that you have when those wants and desires take you in a direction that isn't where God wants you to go. If you follow Jesus... He needs to be absolutely supreme in your life. And you must be willing to deny anything and everything in your life that diminishes His supremacy in your life. And so if you have a relationship that pushes Jesus into second place and causes you to lift up your desires over what Jesus says to do, then you need to deny yourself. If there's something in your life that takes your attention and your affection away from Christ, you need to deny yourself. And before you think that there really isn't anything in my life that's like that, let me just ask you two questions. Number one, how much time did you spend this week watching TV or playing video games or staring at a screen, whether it's a laptop, smartphone, or a tablet? Okay, and how much time did you spend on hobbies? And the second question that I want to ask you is, how much time did you spend with Jesus in His Word or in prayer? So the questions speak for themselves. 
Maybe there is something in your life that you need to deny yourself. Maybe at least for a season or for a little while. If you follow Jesus, he must be supreme over your hobbies, over your careers, your relationships, material possessions, desires, and appetites. And you must be willing to deny yourself anything that gets in the way of Christ being supreme in your life. The next thing he says is you need to take up your cross. And let me tell you, this right here, this is a very misunderstood text. Because people read this text and they think to themselves, hmm, I need to bear my cross. Which means, I just need to bear my burden. I just need to do my part. In fact, you've heard people say over and over again when it comes to their struggles in their lives, whether it's addiction, whether it's health issues, whether it's relationship issues, you've heard them say, well, that's just my cross to bear. Okay, That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus did not say, pick up your burdens and follow me. He did not say, pick up your yoke and follow me, which would make sense if he was talking about burdens here. He did not say, pick up your perceived struggles and follow me. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. Okay? And the key word in this is cross. Because, because in our culture, what we have to understand is the cross has become a symbol of hope and love. But when, when Jesus used this phrase, the cross was a symbol of shame and torture and a symbol of suffering. And so it was a graphic symbol that people didn't even talk about in polite company. Crucifixion was an awful punishment. And Roman citizens didn't get punished no matter how bad they were. Because guess what? Crucifixion for Roman citizens were, was against the law. Crucifixion was reserved for the enemies of Rome. Cruci to, be, to be crucified meant that you weren't a citizen. And it also meant that you were despised. The cross was a symbol of pain and shame and deliberate suffering. And so Jesus, when he says, take up your cross, he says, if you're my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. In fact, Luke actually records it by saying, take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. Every single day, take that cross up. Every single day, take up the symbol of pain and suffering. Every single day, this is the point, you need to be willing to suffer for Christ. Every single day, you need to be willing to suffer for Christ. That is application number four. We must be willing to take up our cross and suffer for Jesus. Now, this is a concept that Christians in America do not like. This is something that we don't want to embrace. The idea is Christian suffering. Because I'm going to tell you right now, a large number of people will come to Jesus because they simply just want their life to be better. Okay? And they're looking for God to bless them, right? They're not looking to suffer. Right? And in a sense in America, you know, being a Christian is about God blessing you and prospering you and giving you what you want. And let me just be clear. Okay? I believe with all my heart the best possible life there is to live with the most possible joy is a life that's given over to Christ. And I do believe that God blesses us more than we can possibly deserve. Okay? And I also believe that God will prosper us beyond our wildest imaginations, but for His purposes and for His glory. So let's not lie to ourselves. A part of the Christian life is, in fact, suffering for Christ. If you don't believe that, then you really haven't read your Bible. In fact, let me just show you Romans 5, 3 through 5. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we can go on and on and on. All you got to do is just type in the phrase in, in, into Google, what does the Bible say about suffering? And, and you will go to what it says, openbible.com, and you'll just see all of the texts that talk about suffering. Suffering is a part of being a Christian. That's why Jesus says, take up your cross. Daily, we need to be willing to suffer for Christ. Now, he doesn't say that you need to enjoy suffering. Okay? That's not what he's saying. Okay? He says that you need to be willing to embrace the suffering that comes as a result of following him. Okay? What's Jesus saying here? He's not saying that you need to be willing to suffer for suffering's sake. You need to be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. You need to be willing to suffer in a culture that makes fun of your beliefs. You need to be willing to suffer co-workers imputing your, uh, your name and your intelligence because, because you have faith. You need to be willing to allow your classmates to call you names like Bible Thumper and Jesus Freak as you stand up for the cause of Christ. You need to be willing to suffer harsh words and even persecution for Jesus. You need to be willing to be stepped on by those people that you love and those people that you aim to help for the cause of Christ. You need to be willing to suffer through anxiety and fear when it comes to stepping out of your comfort zone for Christ. You need to be willing to risk shame and embarrassment in order to declare your faith in Christ and share your hope with others. I mean, there's something in all of us that wants to withdraw a little bit when it comes to telling others about God and our faith. There's something in all of us that has a fear, you know, that, that we fear is this rejection of others. But let me remind you what Jesus says in this text. He says, Forever who is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed. Brothers and sisters, you and I have been called out by Christ himself to put away this feel good, it's all about me, it's all about my life, it's all about what I want right now from a Christianity. And that we've been called to put away that and deny ourselves and willingly embrace the inconvenience and the embarrassment and the humiliation and the uneasy feelings that comes with following Jesus and living for him and pick up our cross and willingly suffer daily for Christ. Because remember what Paul says in Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us. You see, here's the truth. This life right here and right now is but a breath. It's a vapor. And whatever suffering that we may experience here in this life right now is nothing in comparison to the glory of what's coming. By contrast, whatever riches we have in this life they're not worthy of the glory that's coming. There's, there's something on the horizon. There's something that's coming that will make this entire life, okay? And not just the suffering part, but to make this entire life pale in, into insignificance, okay? In fact, that's why, you know, shortly after this conversation, I believe Jesus shows his disciples his glory. He wanted to give them this picture of what's to come so that they will, so that it would be completely overshadowed any notion that they might have of this life here and now. Remember in, in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it, after it has come with power. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You see, Jesus not only was talking about things being larger than life, he was not only talking about that there are things bigger and more important in his life. He showed them a glimpse of that glory to come. And just even at that little glimpse, they were terrified and they didn't know what to say. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever thought about what it's going to be like when you finally meet God? Okay. How are you think you're going to react? I mean, think about this. I mean, there's a reason why the Bible describes God as in this unapproachable light. Right? There's a reason why the Bible talks about the inhabitants of heaven falling down on their faces, shouting, holy, holy, holy. Okay? What an awesome spectacle it must be when we finally stand in the presence of God. What an awesome and terrifying experience it's going to be. And Jesus gives them a glimpse of that. And Jesus is helping them see that there's a greater reality beyond here and now. A reality that's so awesome that is worthy and is worthy of denying ourselves anything and everything that gets in the way of following Christ. A reality that's so glorious that, that whatever suffering that we might participate here in on this life, that it's nothing in comparison to the glory for those who follow Jesus. And remember, we all will stand and face Him. Okay? We will all be resurrected. We will stand in His glorious, awesome, and terrifying presence. And those who put their faith and trust in Jesus will live forever in the life-giving presence of God in joy forever and ever and ever. And those who don't will be cast into the lake of fire and they will suffer for eternity apart from God. That is why Jesus' admonition in verse 35 is so striking because he says, for whoever would save his life, Okay? Whoever you know, would live this life instead of for Christ will lose it. But whoever would lose their life for my sake and the gospel will save it. See, Jesus is saying that, that this life here right now and all that it holds is nothing compared to your eternity. It's not worthy of your eternity. It doesn't matter if you have all the fame and all the money and, and all the, the sexually gratifying experiences you could ever want and all the joy and pleasure that this life would have to offer. It's not worthy of your eternity. In fact, Jesus' words are very specific when he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If you're living this life and you end up with everything you ever wanted, what does it gain you if in the process you lose for eternity? For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. That's why Jesus is helping us to see that the Christian life isn't some happily ever after here on this earth. But it's a happily ever after in eternity. After. In eternity. And after helping us to see that he urges us, those of us who would, would come after him, those who would call ourselves his disciples, those who would say that we are Christians, that they would deny themselves, take up their cross. And then the third thing is, follow him. 
Okay? And this expression to follow Jesus is meant in the fullest sense of what it meant to be a first century disciple. A disciple followed his master wherever he went, and a disciple did what the master did, and a disciple did what the master said to do. Jesus says, following me is the equivalent of saying, you need to walk in my footsteps. You need to do what I do. You need to do what I say to do. You need to follow me wherever I lead you. And that's the fifth application of this text. We need to be willing to go and follow wherever Jesus leads us. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples... Um, then we need to get busy making disciples. When he says, love your neighbor, then we need to get down to business and actually love our neighbors. And when, we, when he says, love your enemies, then we need to stop making excuses and start loving our enemies. And Jesus, when he says, forgive and show compassion and feed and heal, that is exactly what he's ex- expecting for us to do. And you and I need to deny the things in our lives that get in the way of all of that. And, and, and we need to deny the things in our schedules that keep us confined so we can't do that. And we need to deny you know, the activities that keep us mindlessly entertained so we're not thinking about that. We need to deny ourselves whatever it is in our lives that get in the way of that. We need to be willing to take up our cross and suffer embarrassment and inconvenience and sacrifices of time doing whatever we want to do for these things. And we need to be willing to to look foolish for the cause of Christ. We need to be willing to suffer as outcasts for the gospel. We need to suffer whatever needs to be suffered so that Christ, to do what, what Christ is calling us to do. Because the thing is, what you have to understand is that God, he didn't save you for you. He saved you for his glory. Okay? He loves you. Don't misunderstand that. Okay? And out of his love, he saved you. But, look, but understand, he didn't save you for you. He saved you for his glory. In fact, Paul tells us in the letter to the Ephesians, he says, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that who we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He goes on to say, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You were saved to glorify God. He rescued you to glorify himself. And the best way for you to glorify God is to live your life with eternity in full view of everything that you do. And the best way to do that is to do what Jesus said, which is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and get busy following Jesus. You know, the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, um, the, the, the main point of the movie can be summarized Um, in this story. In fact, Andy, the main character, said this. He said, it comes down to this. Get busy living or get busy dying. Well, the same can be said for those who call themselves Christians. Get busy living for eternity or get busy dying for now. Guess where we're at? Because Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And in in Matthew, in his version, he records Jesus also saying, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So it all comes down 
to this. Get busy living for eternity or get busy dying for now. So what about you? This whole series has been about a decision to make. If you don't know Christ, then you're absolutely free to do what you want to do, to live your life the way you want to live it, to have no standard held over your head. But you will find that that life is hollow and there is no sustained joy in that. And then you will find there is an eternity that awaits you that is comprised of never-ending suffer, suffering and agony in the darkness apart from the presence of God. Or you can turn to Christ, trust in him, place your faith in him, repent of your sin. And he is faithful to forgive you. Your name will be written in his book of life. Now, in this life, Jesus does not promise that all your dreams are going to come true. And he does not promise a pain-free, problem-free life right here and right now. In fact, he says things like, deny yourself. <laughs> Take up your cross and follow me. But he does promise that in this life, he will never leave you or forsake you. And that he promises to guide you and to strengthen you. And he promises to restore you and to sanctify you. And he promises that when the shadow of this life is over, you will stand with him in his glorious, life-giving presence. And there will be no more tears and no more shame or sorrow or even suffering. And that joy-filled life that you have with Christ and all other believers will last forever and ever and ever and ever into eternity. So the choice is yours. Get busy living for eternity or get busy dying for now. Let me pray for you. Lord God, I thank you for the depth of your word. I thank you for the words of Mr. Morgan who said, reading the word of of God over and over again, he finds that it's deeper and deeper and deeper, and I just am grateful for that. I'm grateful for the, the depth of your love for me. I'm grateful for the depth of your wisdom. And Lord, I just, I also am thankful for, for difficult teachings. And I just pray, Lord, that you would just empower me to do that, to live what you want, you want me to live, that you would help me to deny myself. You would help me to take up my cross and daily take up my cross and then follow you. And I pray that you do all that in all of our hearts, Lord, that we would just come to that place where we just decide that like, yes, we love Sunday morning, but our life is so much bigger than that. And that there is a whole world out there that's suffering and waiting to hear your hope and the healing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that you would use all of us to go out and minister to the world, that you would raise up in this congregation of people who love you and who are willing to go out and storm the gates of hell every single day, taking up their cross and loving and sharing with the lost and the brokenhearted. And we pray that most of all, you were glorified in all that we say and all that we do. And we love you and praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.